Hello, you're listening to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast, presented by Brandon Elliott. This show will be going over all aspects of real estate investing and is intended to educate, motivate, and prepare you to take action on your first or next real estate investment. For more information, please visit BrandonElliottInvestments.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome back, everyone, to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast. I am your host, Mr. Brandon Elliott. I'm excited today. We got a special guest. We're going to be covering really infinite banking strategies. If you are a real estate investor, if you're a business owner, if you are a human being in this world that we live in, you should be setting up an infinite banking strategy that you can really, truly become the bank yourself instead of like totally flipping the script on the banks, right? Like at the end of the day, we end up giving all of our money to the bank and they give us how much percent back each year, right? Close to, we're giving them 0% interest opportunities and then they are lending it back out nine times over, averaging anywhere from 500 to 3000%. I talk about it all the time. I think it's crazy, but they have mastered it, right? The banks have mastered it and it's time for us to really take more control of over our finances over our future over really generational wealth and what you can do with it by just getting the proper education how to become the bank right and there's life insurance policies there's infinite banking strategies and ibc type of methods that you can utilize and we're going to be covering that today richard is over in canada and slightly different i would assume when it comes down to these policies potentially i don't know we're going to find out today but Really excited to have you on today, Rich. How are you? I'm great, man. I'm, I'm excited to be here. I hope to add a ton of value to your group. And you know, as far as IBC is concerned in Canada and US, fundamentally everything is the same. The differences are really subtle. And where they're yeah. subtle, they they almost don't really matter. The biggest difference is like population base. You know, we're, we're one tenth the size of the American population. So <laughs> it just means that we have maybe a few less choices on insurance carriers. But to some degree, that's actually makes things a little bit easier. You know, sometimes there's a saying that when you have too many options or choices in front of you, it's like, okay, what restaurant are we going to go to tonight? And you list off 10 different ones. Nobody can pick one restaurant, but if you only listed off two, oh, you know which one you're going to go to, right? So there's some advantages also in that to some degree, which, which makes it a lot of fun. Man, we love what we do. We have a blast. We love work. We were a ton of real estate investors and we're very popular in the real estate community. And really the, you know, right before we hit the record button, it's at the end of the day, real estate investors, they want a number of things. They want to create equity. They want to have control. You know, one of the reasons why a lot of people get into real estate is because they don't like what the system is doing to them. They don't want to participate in having someone else babysit all their stuff. And, you know, they're sitting there on their hands and knees with their, you know, their hands up praying with a hope, pray and wish model of a of financial success is going to come to them because someone else is looking after all their stuff. Yeah. You need to take that control back at the you and me level. And that's what your podcast teaches people how to do. That's what you're so good at doing. And, and the many guests that you have helping people see and understand that there is a way out. There is a way of control that you can create in your financial life. It requires some energy, effort, and most definitely some education. The infinite banking space is really fundamentally no different, but the synergies between this idea of, again, investment real estate and it's different, many different categories and forms. There's a lot of them out there. And infinite banking is is very similar. It's most closely aligned with really long-term buy and hold type of a strategy. You know, you, you, you want to go get a property, Eventually, you get it paid for. It produces cash flow. That cash flow can increase over time as as it pays down. You reset mortgages, etc. You know, you have a lot of opportunities that are available there, and eventually, that'll produce a long term passive income. Help support retirement. By the way, I don't believe in the word retirement. I think it's a swear yeah. word. I think it's one yeah. of the dirtiest words in the English language. It was originally coined in like the 1890s by Otto von Bismarck, who was the Chancellor of Germany, and it was basically designed to force older people out of the workforce that. We're, we shouldn't still be working to make room for new people to come into the workforce. So we've been wow. working on a well over a hundred year model of a word that doesn't even make sense in the current measure of society, but everyone's got it beat into their head because of the marketing, which is just totally asinine in my opinion. So just throwing that out there. But, <laughs> I like that. But fundamentally, like, you know, it's not the word retirement. It has a meaning for you. It's actually the meaning that's more important. It's the idea of passiving. It's the idea of being able to do something on your own terms without being beholden to some other environment, some other person's control or thumb or workforce, mm-hmm. et cetera. That's really what people want. And further to that, having done this now for 14 years, when I speak to people all the time, especially real estate investors, one of the things that comes up from them repeatedly, it's consistent in almost every conversation 
is what do they want to leave behind? The idea of this word legacy, and then what does that mean to you? What it means to you and what it means to your listeners, what it means to the folks on Facebook Live right now, it might be slightly different to everyone, but there's going to be common themes of those things. And when you incorporate the concept of becoming your own banker, the, the, the implementation of that idea in your life, you automatically take steps towards enhancing, improving, in my opinion, by a dramatic degree, the impact of the legacy that you can leave. So mm. if you truly love and care about people, your family or friends or, or a cause in your life, to not, not incorporate with a level of efficiency your own day-to-day financial activity, cash running through your life, money comes in and money goes out. It's in between the in and the out where you can harness some of the potential of that money. And that's where infinite banking comes in. See, your podcast and the real estate investors, really real estate investors are entrepreneurs or business owners. But a lot of times, we, because the word investor is tied into it, we always associate it with investment and investing. Well, investments can go up and they can also go down. All right. Lots of market data can show you that that's the case. You sure. need a good skill set and a good knowledge base and right aptitude to be able to manage those things effectively and also manage the, the emotional connection that comes with those ups and downs as markets shift and change because you don't control the market. All right. You can only control what you can control. Well, when you operate in this system with the insurance company, which is simply the vehicle, the mechanism that is used, implement the infinite banking concept. So infinite banking concept, it's a way of life. It is something that you do. An insurance policy is just a vehicle. It's just a tool. It's something that you use. Okay. Yeah. I look at it as, um, you've probably seen a Swiss army knife before. You know, yeah. you can get, you can get the little ones that just have like the little tiny nail clippers and it doesn't have like a fork or anything. It just has like a couple tools. And then you can get like the Cadillac that's got like a spoon on the side and, you know, like a saw and all like. Basically, if you're a survivalist and, you know, your, your bear grills out in the, you know, you might be able to survive, you know, kill a lion with this thing or whatever you need to do. So it's going to be your all in one tool. None of those individual tools on that knife are particularly better than if you just bought the individual tools. Yeah. Right. But combined, it manages to do a whole bunch of things for you. Fundamentally, dividend paying participating whole life insurance is that Mac daddy Swiss army knife financial vehicle. It may not have the best single one of anything, but in combination, and that thing will get you out of a lot of jams. Okay. Oh, for sure. That's really what you're looking at. Now, talk to me. You know, I, I know that we use the word or the acronym IBC. What does that stand for for anybody listening that, that might have went over our heads right away? Yeah, great. Thank you for that. So IBC stands for the infinite banking concept. And, you know, you can see for anyone watching on the video here, Becoming Your Own yeah. Banker is the book. It was written by R. Nelson Nash. Nelson was my friend and my mentor, and uh, I loved him dearly. He was an amazing human being. He wrote and published this book, self-published it in the year 2000. So this idea and this concept has really only started to begin around that time frame. Prior to the book coming out, Nelson used to travel across you know, the United States being sponsored, and he would do 10-hour seminar events. He would do maybe 20 to 50 of those a year, but to small groups of people. So it really wasn't until the book published and being self-published, it's taken a while to really get some steam. And yeah. so I first got a copy of this book in 2009. It just totally changed my whole life. It was like it hit with like a Mack truck. And you know, once I realized the content of the book, and I, once you become aware of something, it's like once you become aware of different real estate investing strategy, like you don't forget that strategy. Whether you implement or not, it's in the back of your mind. It's always there. And so as soon as you get exposed to that thing, you, you don't really forget it. And I knew in my, like, I wouldn't be operating in my integrity if I didn't share what I learned in this book with other people. Because if I know about it, I'm doing a disservice to other people by not making sure they are also aware it exists. So that's what really brings us to being on this show today and having that conversation. So the infinite banking concept is what it's called. And the implementation of that concept is best utilized with a dividend paying, participating whole life insurance contract that is issued by a mutual insurance company in, in US or in Canada. So Richard, let's simplify this and kind of break it down. How do you become your own bank? You're talking about setting up this life insurance, but what does that look like for somebody that has never even heard of this concept before? Yeah, so I'll, I'll use an example like this. So let's say you, know, you want to go and you're going to do a flip. You're going to do flip property. You've already acquired, you got financing, third parties, a joint venture partner. You've acquired the deal. Now you got to fund the flip. And maybe you didn't build that in the deal. Maybe that's what you're bringing to the table as a real estate investor in this example. 
So mm-hmm. you've built up a pot of money in your own bank or savings account. And let's just say, or a home equity line of credit or some other mechanism you've built up and you've got 60 grand and that's the cost of your flip project. Okay. So you're going to drain down your savings account, paying for materials and funding contractors and doing everything you need to, to get the flip done. All right. Once the flip done, if all the math works out good and the market is good, you're going to take your profits and you're going to go stick that money and refill that account back up again. Make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so that's if you use your money or if you use OPM, someone else's money, other people's money, you're borrowing their capital and then you're increasing the amount that you owe them and then you pay that off and then you're you're back to square one. So you're always dealing with borrowed money. You're either borrowing someone else's money because they've created a pile of it or you're borrowing your own capital by draining your resources down and then you have to replace those resources to do the next thing. So you're either going to give up interest that you could have earned on your own money or you're going to pay up interest to access someone else's money. There are no exceptions. That is the basis of banking and and financing. Okay. When you become your own banker, you begin to take control of that process. So instead of putting your capital in a savings account and building it up and building it up and building it up, we put it into an insurance company in an insurance contract that you own and control, ownership and control, very important words. It builds up and it builds up and it builds up. Then when you want to go and access capital, you can take what's called a policy loan from the insurance company with no questions asked. Unlike a typical loan that you would get from ABC lender, you know, Wachovia Bank or something, unlike that typical loan, you don't have, there's no credit checks, you don't have to qualify for it, it's on demand, and you, as the banker, get to control the repayment terms. So that is one of the most fundamental layers of control that you can possibly get. It's referred to as an unstructured loan. In other words, you control the structure. So how fast you repay it, whether you repay it, the speed, the rate, the amount, all of those things are under your determination and discretion. So in our flip example, you build up this reservoir of capital, you access a collateral policy loan from the insurance company, no questions asked. A lien gets placed on the death benefit of the insurance contract. So if you die before the flip is done, money pays out tax-free to your family and the people you love and care about, maybe some joint venture partners who are owed some money, let's just say, hypothetically, because you want to protect your partners, all right? The more you protect your partners in business, the more partners you're going to have in business, is my opinion. And so that loan that you took to do a flip, that gets repaid by the death benefit first. The remaining amount goes tax-free to your beneficiaries. So it's it's a way to wrap that all up with a measure of protection in one shot. And so when your flip project's done, you sell the flip, you have your profits, you go and you replenish the policy loan, and that money is sitting there waiting for you to use it again for the next deal and the next deal and the next deal. Meanwhile because you put your capital in the contract to begin with, it continues to go uninterrupted as though it's never touched at all. Because we never took your capital out. We only used your capital as collateral and we allow your capital to continue growing. Same way that you might use your primary residence, home equity line of credit to invest in some deals. You don't sell the house to do that. So Rich, to simplify these things, basically this is a life insurance policy. It comes with death benefits, but it also comes with when you put the funds in there, you can actually take a loan against it's not your typical life insurance these are investing in you know top 500 companies out there that are you know index type of investments right that are paying out on a regular basis that will be able to guarantee to a certain degree actually the returns on it so we know that we're going to hit a certain number per year really on this account you can take a loan out against it as collateral up to what is the typical range that you you usually see? Yeah. So like in a typical policy, you can borrow 90% of whatever the total equity is, the total cash value it's referred to as. And so cash value is just no different than equity in a house. So if you had equity in a property, you can might be able to borrow 80% in a typical property. That's an investment deal. Or in the the real, in the uh, insurance contract, you can borrow 90% with no questions asked on any given day. How long after you fund the policy, how long typically can somebody pull this out? Do they have to wait years? Is that, you know, 10 days, you know, a couple months? What does that look like? It depends on the insurance carrier. But in general, usually you're able to take a policy loan in the first 30 days, sometimes as many as like four or five days later, sometimes 30 days later, but in general, usually within 30 days. And the amount that you can access is whatever is available to be lent from your policy. 
some insurance companies may have like a minimum, like maybe they have a $500 minimum loan amount as an example. So again, there's some scale here. The, the more you put in, the more you get out. Okay. Yeah. Um, you put pennies in, you get access to pennies. You put dollars in, you get access to dollars. That's really the way to think about it. And just to circle back to your aspect about the company. So what we're talking about is a dividend paying participating insurance contract, whole life insurance contract. Participating is a really important word. What that means is that you are a participating owner in the insurance company. Mm -hmm. So you co-own the company. And if you're dealing with a mutual company, it's kind of like a co-op in that there are no other owners. They're not sold on the stock exchange. You can't go and purchase an ownership stake in them any other way. The only way to be an owner is to own one of these life contracts. And so they must provide their divisible surplus. They must provide their profits back to you. If they have a profitable year, those profits must be shared with the owners. They have no choice in the matter because you're one of the owners, you participate in those profits. They get right back into the policy, they get kicked in and they make the policy grow even further. And they create that compound effect over time, which is really powerful. And so one, one additional thing I would say about that is, again, these, these companies have a very long history. You know, as an example, in Canada, one of our primary companies, I have, I have 12 policies in my family system. Almost all of them are with one carrier. I have, I have three carriers in total that I work with presently, but uh, the bulk of them with one company, because they're amazing. They're fantastic. In business since 1921, they issued their first park contract in 1935, which was during the Great Depression. They were profitable and paid dividends to par owners in their very first year in 1936. Okay. Yeah. And they've done that every single year since through like 16 recessions that we've had in that period of time, never missed a year. Mm-hmm. So the way that they're managed, because insurance companies are thinking about 100 and 121 year lifespans. They're not sure. thinking about five-year increments of interest rates. They're looking at all of these metrics over time. And everything is designed by, you know, by an actuary, which is a form of actuarial science. It's like a mathematical science. And they take all this data and they can predict very accurately out of uh, 10,000 people that are this wide and this tall, <laughs> that are this age, how many of those are going to die each year over the next 60 years? They yeah. don't know which one is going to go, but they can tell you exactly how many are going to go. So the only one that could predict that better, the only actuaries that I understand are better than that. They live in Sicily and they could tell you how the person's going to die and where the body is buried. Yeah. <laughs> that in Jesus. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so it, it does make it, um, you know, it, it's pretty incredible. These policies in general, once you really wrap your head around what it can truly do for you now, just like you said, you have 12 policies yourself. I personally have three policies. I just found out about this a couple of years ago and have fell in love since. Is there any cap to that? Like, is there a number that somebody should stay around or, or get to? Or is there really any limitations on that? Yes, that's a super awesome question. And we do get that question quite often because it really just depends. So people ask yeah. me, well, why do you have 12 policies, Richard? Why didn't you just get one big one? I'm like, well, because when I got the first one, that's all the money I had available to me. And my first policy was $4,219 a year. It's not yeah. very big. But that's what I was able to do at that time. I was starting a brand new business. I just left you know, a 10-year electrical career. I'm a journeyman electrician by trade. I'm a recovering electrician, as I like to say. I emceed one of our events a years back when Nelson was still alive at our annual Think Tank conference. And Nelson introduced me and he said, uh, yeah, he's a recovering electrician. It's been a couple of years. He's now able to turn the lights on again. You know? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's something that we began. And then as I could see the ability to get another one, I got another one. And so for me, just like real estate investors are always looking at how do I get the next deal? How do I get the next property? How do I add the next door into my portfolio? I think that way around policies. I look at a policy as another door in my portfolio. It's an asset. It's an asset class. It's unstoppable in its ability to grow. The only thing that can stop it is somebody dies, in which case you get way more than you put in. Mm-hmm. Or the policy owner can choose to cancel it. The insurance company is not allowed to cancel it. Only you are. So it's total and absolute control. And I get a lot of peace of mind thinking about that. And so for me, it's just a place to park money. We need a warehouse for your money so that you can go do the things in life. You got to go buy a car. Money's got to come from somewhere. You're going to go on vacation with a family. Money's got to come from somewhere. You're going to go down payment on a piece of real estate. Money's got to come from somewhere. You're always dealing with money having to transact towards you and use it for something. The policy is designed to be used while you're alive. It's called life insurance for living, not for sure. dying. And that's really the, uh, the powerful way of looking at it. I'll, g- I'll give you a quick example. So I have a, a couple of clients of mine. They're based out of, in Ontario in the kind of the general Toronto area. They've been buying a lot of uh, smaller apartment buildings in, way out in Eastern Canada. It's, you can get a lot better pricing out in Eastern Canada. 
it'd probably be like equivalent to like buying apartment buildings in Detroit or something with minus the war zone aspect. So they get their dollar can stretch a bit farther there. And, you know, in about a one year time frame, I think they've they might be closing towards 60 doors altogether. So they've done a lot in a short period of time. So they set up a, a corporation that manages their their joint, you know, it's two, two business partners. One of them's a lawyer. The other guy is doing all the heavy lifting. And then they each have their own corporation that, that owns shares in this main corp. And they are doing a couple flip projects. So they had already lined up the financing after the flip was done. They'd lined up the private money to do the flip deal, but they didn't need to spend all the money right away. So when we set up their, their policy system to ensure both of the business partners we're doing multiple things. If one business partner were to die, they need a buy-sell arrangement so that the survivor has the money necessary to buy out the other person's spouse. So sure. he doesn't have to be in business with the spouse. And then he still gets to keep the real estate, okay? And vice versa. So that's called a buy-sell arrangement. So we built that into our structure. Wow. And they were able to take the $60,000 of money that was going to be used for this flip project before yeah. they had to start spending the money for the flip, they were able to fund policy premiums. Then they could borrow from the policy, not all of the capital, but a good amount of it to slowly work on dealing with paying contractors for the flip project. Then they had, it wasn't even a flip. It was just a, it was just a burst strategy to basically a refi. Yeah. They already had the refi set up. So when they got the refi back out, they were able to pay off the remaining partner. They had outstanding policy loans, but the new increased cash flow on rents, they can pay those those policy loans off over a 24-month period of time. All that money will be available to use again. So they didn't just have to say goodbye to the money. They got to harness the money's potential before it left their hands. Yeah, that's good. Is there any tax advantages, tax write-offs that people can utilize with this? Yeah, uh, I mean, depending on their structure, like especially in the real estate environment, I mean, you know, the, the tax differences in Canada and the U.S. are are they're very similar in the principle. They're very similar, but generally, when you're borrowing money for the purpose of generating a profit, that's usually the measurement test, and you can prove that. Then any interest that's used on that borrowed money is a write off. So yeah, you can absolutely write off the interest with the policy loans. There can be some more. How could I put it? A li- maybe a little bit more legwork to make sure that you're reporting that correctly. And at least in Canada, if you're not paying the actual interest cost on a yearly basis, then you have an issue with being able to claim that write-off. It could bite you in the butt later on. So you do have to make sure you're actually paying the annual interest cost. If you don't do that because it's an unstructured loan, you could be your own worst enemy potentially, and you could create a problem on the back end. So we're very mindful about instructing people on that and then making sure they're communicating really effectively with their tax professional so that their tax professional also understands what it is that they're doing. Now, because you are borrowing against yourself, well, before I get into that, there's I got a list of questions that I'd love to run through. So when it comes down to the rates, what can somebody anticipate and expect off of their policy? And then I'm also curious about the loan to be able to arbitrage the difference or yeah, to take yeah. out from it. This is a good question. So the loan policy loan rates will vary. They'll vary by insurance carrier for a variety of reasons. Generally, they're a variable loan, but typically the variable loan rate in a lot of companies is set like one time per year. So as an example, uh, you know, rates have gone up a lot in the last number of, you know, 18 months. And in Canada, literally as of, as of this recording yesterday, we had a small rate, rate increase. So you would see all your personal line of credits, home line of credits go up. The policy loan rate isn't really going up because it you know it only updates one time per year on July first with the, with one particular company. All right, mm-hmm. so so usually they make that announcement a number of months back, and yeah. then they set that price for a year. So there's a little bit often more consistency in the understanding of, of how the rates work. And as that's as, you're referring to as the loan correct? as the loan rate. That's okay right, as the loan rate. Yeah, and if you don't pay the loan back or you don't make payments on the loan because you have the ability to choose not to do that. Any interest that accrues simply accrues and then it it adds on at the end of the policy year and it rotates onto the loan balance for the next year. Okay. So it, it capitalizes on the loan. So there is importance of being aware and mindful. And we we talk a lot about the mindset and that's where Nelson and his book and his his concept really comes in. It's the policy owner's behavior that is far more important than the behavior of the insurance company. It's what you do that makes all the impact. But um, that annual fee though, from that loan that you are taking out, if that's not repaid, that could potentially hurt your, you know, the product itself in the long run, correct? Of what it could make. 
Not necessarily. The biggest thing is, is that it's going to come off the death benefit. So you're reducing the death benefit automatically. That's going to come off for the people you love and care about. And the nice thing is, is that when you're in the driver's seat and you have control over your financial circumstances, control has, you know, it's kind of like uh, the Spider-Man comic with great power comes great responsibility. Okay. So you as the policy owner through education have to really take that responsibility on. Mm. We always recommend having a structured repayment. It is the best way of looking at it. If you're going to borrow money from a third party, like a, like a private lender, yeah, private lender would fund your real estate deal at 12 or 18%. And you're not going to borrow from him. You're going to borrow from the insurance company. Well, the insurance company is going to charge you, let's just say six, but you're not going to pay yourself back at the 18% that Bob Jenkins over here was going to charge you. So we talk about being an honest banker. You should at least pay yourself back what the open market would have charged you for the same use of that private money. What, what the going rate is, basically, you can come up with a promissory note for yourself of exactly what that structure looks like, because you are borrowing from yourself. It's your bank. So you create a quick promissory note that you basically go over the same, you know, what the market rate is at the moment. That's right. And, and I'm going to clarify, it's not that you're borrowing from yourself. You're borrowing from the insurance company. Sure. Your money isn't touched at all. So, so there's an important distinction there. Cause if you're borrowing from yourself, then your money is actually coming out, but yeah. your money never comes out. You're getting the loan, stays in the, there. the general front of the insurance company. So they're independent transactions. And the reason that the insurance company has to charge interest is because you co-own them. They have to put money to work for everyone's benefit, including mm-hmm. yours. So you're borrowing from an entity that you co-own that's demonstrated to be profitable for rough for a hundred plus years. Why on earth wouldn't you want to go do business with an entity that's been proven to be profitable through the worst economic timeframes ever? Pay a little bit of interest to them while they guarantee to continue growing your money for the rest of time. And the worst case scenario is that somebody dies. Yeah. Which, by the way, is always the worst case scenario. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Now, I knew you mentioned that there are these policies are, you know, they're based on adjustable. But what... That, that's the rate to borrow, right? And it increases once a year or gets readjusted. It, you know, it's probably not going lower too often, but especially with where we're at right now, it could be just going higher each year. But as of right now, what can somebody anticipate within their policy? Because it is a, a compound interest type of effect. So what does that look like? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of market information out there. In my opinion, it's, it's all misleading. And I like to avoid being misleading. So I'm going to take a minute or two to expand on this. People look, especially in the investment realm, where our brain is trained to think about a rate and a percentage, but percentages can be deceiving. You know, anyone who's seen the the Anchorman movie knows that 60% of the time, you know, people are right all the time or whatever that saying is. So percentages, in my opinion, are very misleading. We wrote a book here called Cash Follows the Leader. And this book explains the contract and how that contract operates. In fact, I'll offer it for free for all of your listeners. If they want to go to cashfollows.com, boom, they can download a free copy of the book right there. Okay. So cashfollows.com. This book, we wrote people to help them understand and clear up that fundamental misleading component. So by eight in Canada, by age 100, it's cold up here, so don't leave as long. And in the States, by age 121, okay, cash value, which is your equity, your asset, must grow to equal the whole life death benefit. Do we live that long down here? Is that yeah. what that is? I... There are people living that long. And, and really? they, change, they change the actuary. It's, it's what the actuarial table that builds the contract is based on. It's based on a theoretical lifespan. In the States, it used to be 100 for the longest time. Roughly about 10 years ago or so, they modified that to an age 121. Okay. Well, and in Canada, they haven't made any indication they're going to do that. But I suspect, you know, probably in the next decade that we'll follow. Sure. Um, so anyhow, I, I just say it's because it's cold up here. We don't live as long, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so, so by, so in my case, I'm being Canadian presently by age 100, the cash yeah. and all of my policies must grow to equal the death benefit because of how I'm funding the policy. I'm increasing like leapfrogging the death benefit up and up and up ahead every single year. When I receive a dividend, a share of profits from the insurance company, I tell them to stick it right back in and also increase the death benefit. So that leapfrog effect is causing a constant increase in this death benefit. Does that make sense? It does. Now, the death benefits are typically uh, less, though, correct? 
Yeah. When we build the starting of a contract, yeah. our goal okay. is to have a death benefit that it's not that the, we want the death benefit to be lower. It's that we want to prioritize the functionality of the premium. Okay. Yeah. There's two components. There's a minimum required amount, and then there's a flexible amount. And that varies based on company. There's many reasons that these get set up in different ways. Everyone's circumstances are totally different. Okay. Sure. But just on a high level perspective, there's a minimum required and then a flexible amount. The minimum required services the starting death benefit amount. The flexible portion is what's referred to as a paid up addition or a paid up addition premium. As soon as that money gets put into the policy at your choice, your option, your discretion, it instantly purchases a giant chunk of death benefit that's brand new and fully paid for. So you went to buy groceries, you paid for the groceries, you went home and you put them in your fridge. The grocer doesn't show up at your house and say, oh, we're going to need that stuff out of your fridge back because you paid. Yeah. You didn't get the groceries on layaway, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Same idea. When you pay for that extra death benefit, you've now purchased like a, imagine it's like a mini one-time payment whole life contract that's fully funded and it just gets stacked on top to the original, the original contract. You with me? Mm, yeah. So just picture like, like building blocks, like Lego blocks, like a pier, like the steps of a pyramid building up. Yeah. Okay. So every time that those leapfrog forward, what you've done is you've put the insurance company that you co-own on notice. They are contractually obligated, contractually obligated to grow your cash value to equal the future death benefit. They have no, they can't be stopped. Does that make sense? Yeah. So this is where the idea that there's a rate of return in the growth of the policy is misleading because that depends on what you do as a policy owner. All right. Sure. And so some policy owners maybe don't put that extra capital in or they don't do as much of it. If we have two twins and they, they operate totally differently, their policies and their growth potential is going to be totally different based on how they use it. And so you set up these policies originally with, you know, however much you want to put as a down payment. And then after that, it's per year, the premium, what you are anticipating on putting per year. Now that if you have a bad year, for example, or a more difficult one that, you know, th there's a range, right? You can lower it to the minimum. Mm -hmm. But if you ever get to a point where, you know, whatever bankrupt or whatever it is like you know dooms gloom and and for years you're not going to be able to make anything then you will lose the policy correct like that would be canceled or you could sell it typically because there's value within the policy yeah there's a couple options in the states you can sell a policy in canada that's not really an option they frown on, okay. on that sort of thing but also every insurance contract when it's this style of what's called a permanent contract they have built-in internal protection mechanisms. It's like a, like a built-in fuse to, to protect the device. Sure. And there's something called an automatic premium loan provision. So if the policy has value in it still, and because it's growing, if it's already mature, it's growing to a certain degree, no matter what, Yeah, it, it'll automatically go into self-preservation mode after usually 30 or 60 days, if it hasn't received a premium, it'll trigger an automatic premium loan to pay up as much premium as possible until the next anniversary. Well, the next anniversary, you get a dividend, it increases the cash value, and then you got to pay premium again. Well, there might be enough in the growth of the policy plus the dividend that was created and what it put in for cash value that they could basically do that process again. So wow. even in a very difficult time frame, these things have a high probability of continuing to get themselves going forward. And the thought process is like, if you go travel down to whatever, you go to Mexico and you, you, know, you go out on a boat and your boat gets capsized and you're lost at sea or something... Well, they don't know if you're dead yet, so they're not going to pay the claim. And there's a, there's a probability that maybe, or maybe you're in a coma or something and you're not dead. Well, they want to ensure that policy continues on until such a time that it doesn't collapse on itself. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so there's several features that are in place there. The other thing is, in general, most policies with their design, again, this depends on the advisor and certain, certain structures that you may have in place, there's usually a level of creditor protection on them. Sometimes it's automatic, sometimes not so much. It depends on how the beneficiary designations operate. That's something you'd work out with your coach as you're building and designing the program. But given that, I mean, if in event of a bankruptcy status or something, or you had a, a, an LLC or a corporation that someone came after, if you own that policy personally and you have the right beneficiary designation, it's very, very difficult for them to pierce that shell. The reason being the purpose of the policy isn't for infinite banking. The purpose of the policy is for the death benefit. Sure. They can't force you to not protect your family. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep.
Okay. That's so good. it's very hard for them to come after that asset. So when you talk about asset protection and trying to bulletproof yourself, this is one of, in my opinion, one of the most ironclad ways that you can possibly create that in your family's life. And it's very simple to do. I love it. And then, you know, these companies, just like you said, there's been 16 plus recessions and up and down in the market since the beginning of when a lot of these policies, early 1900s were really created and started. And they've always paid out on each one, right? They've always done very well. Has there been any of these banks, these life insurance companies that have kind of gone under or messed up something that people should be aware of? And what should somebody anticipate on the annual increase? So as far as like companies going under, I'm not as familiar with you know the history of the United States, but I, from what I do know, it is very, very rare for an insurance company to be in very drastic hot water financially. Sure. You, usually when that happens, it's insurance companies that are stock companies. Or they demutualized at one point and they're, they're now owned by stockholders. Yeah. And so it's the tale of two masters. So they're always chasing quarterly stock returns to make their stockholders happy. And they yep. pay maybe as much attention to the participating owners. Okay. So that's one of the reasons why there's a focus on working with mutual companies. That's what Nelson Nash really truly believed in. And because you're an owner in that company and there's no other owners, they have a responsibility to their owners. And so the way that they look at management and the things and how they act and behave is in congruency with the policy owner's future endeavors. Does that make sense? Yeah. And they, they have a mandate. It's, a, it's usually a dual mandate, not meaning that it's one and two, it's one and one. <laughs> okay. Number one is to meet the guarantees of their product. Number two, or one A, one B, one B is to support a long-term strong dividend for their par owners. Mm-hmm. So if they're doing a good Pretty job- simple, right? Yeah. It's really good. And if they've got a hundred years of historical data and not just historical data of like market timeframes and market conditions, but also of people dying, right? Yeah. And, and, and of people canceling contracts called lapses. So there's all of these different features, expenses of operation, the taxes that they have to pay. A lot of times, you know, in uh, certainly in Canada, I think to to a degree in the states, there's tax that's built into the premium. If mm. they build it into the premium, then then you as the owner would be paying tax on it individually. So a lot of times, at least in Canada, they, it's called a premium tax, but it's just baked in. So you don't really see okay. that premium is just the premium. The insurance company is then collecting that as as a simple feature, and then they're remitting it to the you know, the Uncle Sam's and the uncle, in our case, the Uncle Trudeau's of the world to give them their penance of tax money, which is funny because literally today we're launching our new book, Keep Taxes Away From Your Wealth. (laughs) And it's uh, five strategies for reducing taxes you owe now in the future. And it's kind of all about that uh, that scenario. So that's too good. I love it. Uh, So when it comes down to, you know, you're talking about taxes right now, when it comes down to the death benefits behind it, you know, your family gets this death benefit policy, is there going to be any taxes that they're going to have to pay? Yeah. So generally speaking, no, death benefits are not taxable. There are in the States, there are different layers of estate taxes and they impact you differently depending on the size of the estate. And and some of those rules I understand are in flux right now. So I'm certainly not an expert on that, but death benefits themselves are not taxable unless something has been done to the policy to create that environment. So as an example, you know, if a policy was met or what's called a modified endowment contract, which can happen due to poor policy design, poor listening of the policy owner when their advisor is instructing them what not to do, <laughs> right? So, so poor coaching or, or poor listening and policy owner behavior, those three primary things could potentially cause an unnecessary hiccup. So it is really important to be educated on this and understand those fundamentals. So how policy design is set up there's some real work that needs to go into that when you're working with an authorized infinite banking practitioner. You're having a conversation with them about longevity. Sometimes it's easy to get wrapped up in what the short-term thing is because our next deal that's on the table, but that short-term thinking can lead to long-term problems. Okay. So Nelson Nash taught us that you have to learn how to think long range, learn how to think beyond your own lifespan. As soon as you actually start to do that on an active basis, the things that you do today, the decisions that you make, they completely begin to shift and change. And so can I give you a personal example of that, Brandon? Yeah, please. So I have two kids. They are five and seven presently. And I have two policies for each of them, right? So four policies. Now, 
I own those policies. I'm the owner. They're the life insured. At some future point, they will go to my children. Now, I don't have to give it to them unless I'm ready. And I may not be ready to give it to them until I'm dead. In Mm. fact, as it sits today, my current plan, and this may change, but my current plan as part of a longevity thinking model is to maintain control and ownership over those policies until such a time as I'm gone. And I'm going to leave specific instructions on what I want those children to do with those policies when I'm gone. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we go on family vacations like anybody else does. When we go on a family vacation, we have a family banking meeting. We earmark at least 30 minutes right now because they're young. As they get older, we'll, we'll move that to an hour and we'll spend time talking about, we'll reference Nelson's book. We'll read some pages out of this book. We'll talk about family banking. We'll talk about certain goals that we have as a family around income and passive income and that sort of thing, things that we want to do. And we're going to get the kids engaged in a financial conversation. But they now associate the swimming and the fun and the water slides and all the cool stuff of a family vacation with the family banking meeting. And the memories are very positive. So financial conversations are extremely positive in our household. So the family banking meeting is one of the critical components that we teach people about to help them understand how to create a longevity mindset in the movement of money. All right. Yeah. Now, as my kids get older, when they need to get married, when they need to go down payment on a home, they want to go buy cars, they need to drive in Canada. There's not a very good bus system. You need to drive. It's cold here. You know, so when they need these kinds of things, they're going to access money from the family bank. Now, whether it comes from their policy or not, I don't care. It doesn't matter. It's one system. A system is a combination of parts working together. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. Like an engine in a car. So we have a system of policies and I don't care where the money comes from. The account number is irrelevant to me. The dollar value comes out and then there's going to be a repayment system built in. If they don't make payments back to the family bank, do they deserve to get what I'm spending a lifetime building? Mm. In my opinion, they don't. And they're going to understand that. So there's going to be a tied incentive. If they don't follow along and they don't participate with the family bank and they want to go do business with a different bank, Bank of America, Wachovia Bank, Toronto Dominion Bank, RBC Bank, whoever they want to go do business with, sure, they're, they're welcome. They have the power of choice. But I will give their policy to charity when I'm gone and they won't get it. Yeah. I do love how you you have the conversations about money and banking and you know family banking. Why? And in a good manner of, you know, surrounded by the vacation and let them know what's paying for it and so forth. Really breaking off the typical old school stinking thinking and like stigma around having money conversations at the dinner table, stuff like that. You know, I think it's so important to get kids understanding about money, how to use it like a real tool that it is and and put it to work and really expose what the rich have been doing for God knows how long and what the banks have been doing to us for God knows how long and how the average person is just kind of going along with the system versus flipping the script on the banks to be able to do exactly the same thing of what they're doing to us. So I, I do love that. Well, and we want to expand this into passive income because a lot of your yes. listeners, they're, they're focused on passive income. So just imagine sure. for a moment, I've got two kids. They both get married. Okay. They each have a spouse. Well, yep. that's, that's four cars, right? Now, each one of them, my kid and the spouse are probably going to need a car for the rest of their life. Is that a fair assessment? Sure. Okay. Unless they live in a big city, which we don't, and I probably don't think they will, but we'll see. Most yeah, likely yeah. We'll they're, they're going to need cars. So if, if the average car is 30 to 50 grand, all right. And that's like today's dollars. So who knows what yeah. dollars are going to look like? Well, the average car payment on that is anywhere between $600 and $1,000, even $1,100 a month. Well, who do you want getting all that money? Do you want Ford Credit and GM, GMC getting all that money? Or do you want that money coming back to the family bank? Yeah. Okay. So if I all I did was finance the cars for my kids and their spouses, and then my grandkids when they're old enough, and I had four cars and it was a $1,000 payment each. That's $4,000 a month. How am I doing on my passive income so far? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. it's, now, it's adding up. Now they're going to need a house, right? Okay, yeah. well, if the mortgage for the house came from Bank of America, Bank of America gets all the money. But if the mortgage comes from the family banking system, the banking system gets all the family's money. Now, Good. if I need to make a payment back to the policy loan, let's say that's $3,000 a month, well, what if I only make a $2,000 a month payment back there and I take a thousand and go buy groceries? Can I do that? Yeah. I'm the banker. I make all the yeah. money. Yeah, of course. 
So I can create a passive income, no different than a piece of real estate, but by being the banker and controlling the banking function as it relates to my family's intergenerational needs. The family vacations, same thing. They want to buy quads and bikes and whatever the thing that they need to do, all of that money, their education for school, all of it's going to come back in and stay within the family system. That's, that's the power of this. And so as we expand that out over time, well, when I kick the bucket, there's probably going to be a big, giant, outstanding loan on all my kids' policies and probably an outstanding loan on dad's policy. Well, when dad goes, a big chunk of tax-free money is going to show up and there's going to be instructions that first they got to pay off any outstanding policy loans. Then they got to take some of the, a certain amount of the excess and they got to go crank up new policies on other family members to keep the system going long-term. Talk me behind this because this is exactly like what the Rockefellers have done and so forth as well, correct? Are you paying the loans? Basically, you fund a new policy, you got 12 of them, um, and then you pull out the funds within your 30 days, right? Are you paying off any of yours or, or yeah. all of them? Yeah, I'll give you an example. So Because you did mention that you don't need to, correct? You don't need to at all at your deathbed, like all of the policy could pay it off, but it's not really the best practice, correct? Yeah, it's going to erode into things very quickly. And so you have to be mindful in management. And it's important that if you're an honest banker, the only thing that makes this work is your brain. Yeah. If this isn't working right, then the policy won't matter and it won't do what you need it to do anyway. Okay. Yeah. So you can't, of, can't rob Bank of America, right? So why would you rob yourself? Why would you rob yourself? And why would you rob your family? More yeah. importantly, all of this comes down to behavior. The insurance policy and the insurance company is, it's not irrelevant, but it's mostly irrelevant. Sure. Everything is right in between your ears. That's where our focus is. And it all comes down to Nelson's book, Becoming Your Own Banker. It really, it spells it all out very effectively. In fact, there's a great documentary film on Nelson. You can go to Nelson Nash Film, nelsonnashfilm.com, and you can watch it. It's only one hour. You'll learn a ton. What's really important is, so I'll give you an example. I just took 18,500 bucks in policy loans. Okay. We bought a home, a home gym, a Peloton bike. It was used. We bought a, uh, I did a landscaping deck project. I had a four $5,000, two vehicle repairs, you know, and new tires and, you know, a paddleboard and a couple other miscellaneous items. The end result, it, it ended up to 18 grand or something. Okay. So the policy loans, I, they're probably just, I haven't even checked the bank out. They probably landed in the last day or two. I just haven't had a chance to look for them yet. So I used Visa and Amex or whatever to do those transactions. I got all my points. Mm-hmm. Now, that money's here. I'm going to pay those guys off so I don't pay any interest to them. I've already set up a loaner payment schedule. I'm quite happy and comfortable to make a $750 payment back to my system. That's the number yeah. that I came up with. Okay. Well, I said, okay, well, I want to put back more money than I took out. It's very simple. Do I care about the interest rate? It doesn't really matter. I took out X amount. I'm going to put back more than what I took out. 750 times 30 months is... 22,500 bucks. I took 18,500. I'm going to put 22,500 back in. Make sense? Mm-hmm. A little bit of interest will go to the insurance company. Let's just round it up for a second. Let's just say it's going to be a thousand bucks over the time. It won't be, but we'll just keep it very simple. So that means 18,500 goes back in, a thousand interest. I'm at 19,500. Everybody with me so far? Yeah. If I'm putting in 22,500. Aren't I putting in about an extra three grand of money that has to go somewhere? Yeah. Now, is there, there's certain caps on that, correct? That's correct. Because I have a system of policies, multiple policies, one of those policies is going to have room for more premium. Sure. I take that $3,000 and I apply it as extra premium into the policy that increases my dividend potential for the rest of the life insured's life on planet earth. It increases death benefit instantly. It increases the cash accumulation for the rest of time because cash follows the leader Yeah, because the cash must equal the death benefit by age 100 or 121, depending on where you live. So it's not about the rate of return of a policy. It's about the flow of money and who controls the flow of money for the longest period of time. That's good. I love that. Richard, this is powerful. I'm excited to see what my policies end up doing for me. I feel like the more conversations I have with this, it starts clicking a little bit more. But you know, if this is your first time, guys, listening to this and hearing these strategies, I highly recommend sitting down with Rich and his team and going over what it would even look like, an illustration of, of what that looks like for you and your family today moving forward, right? I have three policies. Just a couple months ago, back in February, I started a new one. I put 500,000 in because it was in the bank and that was driving me crazy. Um, And then, you know, I think it was like 10 business days later, we pulled out 94% of it, which was crazy. 
And so there's many ways that that you can really put this to work and still grow and have tax benefits and, and really truly just become your own banker, right? And that's that's the power behind it. So Rich, how can people get a hold of you? How can they set up a call with you and your team? And you you have a bunch of content right now going on, a lot of new stuff. So how can people get a hold of some of that stuff? Well, for, first thing I would suggest you do is you go to cashballs.com and get a free copy of that book. It'll oh. download right away. Uh, nice and easy. It's a it's a quick read. Most people get reading in about, you know, about an hour or so. You know, I would really recommend people tune into our podcast, which is Wealth Without Bay Street. Bay Street is the equivalent of Wall Street in Canada. Our podcast isn't really Canadian. It it started that way, but it's actually really a North American podcast. We do operate in the States as well. And we have so many colleagues and friends here. So really when we're talking about this concept it's not really a border that makes a difference yes there's some finite details one border or the other but in the general conceptual aspect of how you implement this in your life it doesn't matter where you live so that's what we speak to and we have interviews with you know high performing entrepreneurs and business investors etc and it's a ton of fun so i would encourage people to check it out there and yeah i mean all of our details and how to reach us to are available on those locations so um, cool. YouTube and whatever we're we're on all the we're on the YouTubes and the in the tweeters and the Tic Tacs and all the different things that are yeah, all the tubes I love yeah. it cool well thank you so much for today honestly it was it was a wealth of knowledge I know this is going to impact somebody out there that needs to hear it at the right time so I'm grateful for your time today and being able to pour into the listeners you got a wealth of knowledge and a wealth of policy so that's that's incredible for you and your family. And so if you don't have a policy yet, what are you waiting for? Like I said, I have three right now. We're working our way up to get many more in the future. And uh, it's just the beginning. So if you guys want to get a hold of me, you can always do so on Instagram. It's Brandon Elliott Investments. If you're looking to get a hold of me on Facebook, it's facebook.com forward slash Brandon Elliott Investor. And then if you are really interested in learning how to be able to get up to $500,000 every six months at 0% interest, that's right, 0% interest. We can teach you how to do it every six months, anywhere from you know six months to 22 months at the 0% interest so that you can do the birth strategy, fund a policy possibly. We can teach you how to get a big stack of this from the banks. And what you can do is go to creditcounselelite.com. That's www.creditcounselelite.com. There's a quick 10 minute video on there. It explains a little bit more. And uh, afterwards you can book a call with either myself or somebody on our team to really go over your situation, get a second opinion. If you have not already hit that subscribe button, I don't know what you're waiting for. Make sure you do that right here, right now. Hit the subscribe button. You'll get the newest notification every single Monday when the new episode drops. Greatly appreciate all the five-star reviews. You guys are amazing. Keep them coming. And I uh, love you guys. Share this out. We'll see you on the next one. Until next time, guys, God bless. Richard, appreciate you. Thanks. Thanks. This has been another episode of Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by Brandon Elliott. For more information, please visit BrandonElliottInvestments.com. Also, please don't forget to like, share, and leave a comment below. Thanks again for joining. Until next time, God bless.